Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. What we're hearing this hour is seriously different ways of thinking about the war in Ukraine from two men I've known and respected for decades. James Carroll is the novelist, historian, former Catholic priest, and peace activist from long before I knew you, Jim, which goes back 40 years. Andrew Basevich, you're the writer, fighter, university-based historian I've known for only 20 years. When Jim Carroll went off to the seminary as a teenager, you went off to West Point as a soldier, Andy, and then to Vietnam, but you came around to a strong anti-war conviction and activism in the form of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is our collaborator in this radio series. I'm the journalist at large here, grateful to have enlisted both of you in this conversation. Jim Carroll, you started the conversation with a six-part essay that you published last month with the New School in New York in their online public seminar. You called it an anti-war activist's personal and political reckoning. The big surprise for me and for yourself was your realization from last spring that for the first time in decades, you said, I was unabashedly in favor of war. You thought the evil empire, Russia, was back and that the United States had to fight it. And you could barely believe what you'd written. You added, if after six decades, I was no longer a war objector, who was I? Jim, what was it you had discovered? Well, Chris, first of all, good to be in conversation with you and Andrew Basevich. The first revelation for me was that this roughshod aggression by Vladimir Putin's Russia against the nation of Ukraine was a savage violation of human standards, political norms, the uh, structure of international order, a savage assault against defenseless human beings. And the people of Ukraine in their resistance to this aggression, in my view, represented something quite stunningly noble. There was a refusal to yield to this aggression that I found completely praiseworthy, worthy of aligning myself with. So I regard the war of Ukrainian resistance to the Russian aggression as a just war. And I think that the United States and the nations of the West are right to support the Ukrainian resistance. Uh, so yes, I find myself for the first time in my adult life after having opposed America's wars for decades in favor of war. The other major revelation of the war in Ukraine for me has to do with what I regard as an even deeper problem of the human condition as we live it now, which is the radical evil of the existence of vast arsenals of nuclear weapons and the threat to the human future represented by Putin's nuclear swashbuckling his threatening, his capacity to start a nuclear war, for me as a punctuation mark on the nuclear age and a radical call for us finally to get serious about prohibiting, if not outright eliminating, any use of nuclear weapons, which is, of course, a call addressed as much to the United States as to anyone, perhaps more to the United States than anyone. That's why I'm here talking with you. We'll get to all of that, Jim, including the argument under the nuclear umbrella that 
the idea of deterrence, striking back as a restraint, is completely wrong, maybe the central evil in the whole logic of our thinking. But Andy, your view in short of what you were going through, like and unlike Jim Carroll's experience of the Ukraine war. I guess I have tended to uh, view the war through the lens of post-Cold War uh, U.S. policy, which to my mind has been foolhardy in particular because of the political establishment's embrace of military power as the preferred means of solving problems. This was already evident before 9-11, if we think about U.S. policy in the 1990s and places like the Balkans, but certainly it became into focus after 9-11 as the United States embarked upon uh, the war on terror, which I viewed as sheer folly in the context of Iraq as outright criminal. And I have to say that ever since that moment when the U.S. decided to invade Iraq in 2003, I have found it very difficult to take seriously any references to so-called norms uh, with regard to the international order, because it became crystal clear to me that for the United States, as arguably the most powerful country in the world, certainly militarily the most powerful, uh, that norms are simply a matter of convenience, uh, that we will adhere to norms when we find it in our interest to do so, uh, when our interests are otherwise, we will categorically reject those norms. And therefore, although I certainly condemn Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine as a criminal act, I'm not sure I agree with Jim. He writes in his, in his essays that it was a genocidal invasion, but it certainly was a criminal act. Uh, it's not clear to me that Russia's behavior vis-a-vis Ukraine is all that much different than U.S. behavior regarding adversaries that we have uh, fastened our gun sights on. I see much here that you and I agree about, Andy. Your characterization of U.S. policy post-Cold War, for example, I joined you resolutely in condemning the folly of the invasion of Iraq, the forever wars, the war in Afghanistan, in my view. I would actually go all the way back to the first Gulf War in 1991 as a terrible beginning of this catastrophic series of American intrusions. Two things, though. I don't think that any of America's hubristic, misguided, blind, and often brutal efforts at so-called nation-building, I don't believe that those actually compare to what Putin is doing in Ukraine. The scale of savagery, the risk of global catastrophic nuclear war, we're in a completely different category of danger, in my view. You began by saying that you view the war in Ukraine through the lens of U.S. policy post-Cold War, and that's where we differ most. I view the war in Ukraine through the lens of the experience of the Ukrainian people, the women being raped, the children being kidnapped, the civilians being bombed indiscriminately, the savagery of the Russian war, the clear imperial, ravenous imperial appetite of uh, Vladimir Putin, his contempt for the existence of the Ukrainian people as a people. That's why I use the word genocide, because this is a man who wants to wipe the Ukrainian people as a people out. His end is revealed in his means, and the means are beyond savage, a brutal war directed at the people themselves, not even a pretense of targeting 
military targets as such, a readiness to weaponize a nuclear power plant and all the dangers that go with that. It's a staggering display of radical imperial wickedness. And I see it not through the lens of American policy, that's where we differ, but through the lens of Ukrainian experience. Well, I'm an American. (laughs) And therefore, that defines my point of departure, my country, what it professes to be, what it aspires to do, the way it actually conducts itself. And frankly, I worry. I'm not implying that you are suggesting this. But I worry that one of the unintended, unforeseen consequences of the Ukraine war is that it provides many Americans, I think particularly Americans in positions of power, to write off the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. That we are able now to point our fingers at Putin. Again, I I don't have the quote in front of me, but in, in your fascinating series of essays, you make allusions to the fact that the Ukraine war, in a sense, has brought our primordial, I think you used that term, hatred of Russia back into clear focus. I think there's merit to that statement. But as our hatred, disdain, contempt for Russia comes into focus, therefore uh, our own actions in places like Iraq and Afghanistan are marginalized and indeed forgotten. I'm not ready to write off the post-9-11 wars. I think that many Americans are, have already written off those wars, with the Ukraine war providing an impetus uh, to that inclination. I regret terribly the many consequences of this war, first and primarily for the people of Ukraine and the suffering they're going through and the grotesque uh, danger they're living with, but I also regret with you the re-empowering of American militarism. I regret with you the way in which this does invite a kind of amnesia about the horrors of the 25 years, 30 years of American uh, intrusions, especially in the Middle East, but not only there. I couldn't agree more with you the importance of not writing off, not being amnesiac about our misbegotten and wicked wars in which hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been killed. But that does not excuse us from understanding full well what's going on in Ukraine and what's threatened to this population of millions of people. I cannot disagree with that. But you just made reference to the hundreds of thousands. Did you just say millions of people who have been killed as a result of our post-9-11 wars? Those are big numbers. Yes, indeed. I don't know how many people have been killed in the Ukrainian war. We don't know. Nobody knows. Probably in the tens of thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure we're trying to weigh guilt in terms of numbers of corpses. But again, I'm repeating myself, and I apologize for that, that this is a harsh word. Obsessing about the Ukrainian war does provide an excuse for forgetting our own crimes And I am simply not willing uh, to enable that to happen. I reject that. I am obsessed with the war in Ukraine. I admit it. I'm obsessed with what's happening to Ukrainians. I'm obsessed with the danger Putin's aggression represents 
not just in Ukraine, but in Europe. And I'm obsessed with the danger, his threats, his readiness, his apparent capacity to initiate nuclear war. I'm obsessed with that too. That does not disable me from being fully, fully, resolutely committed to a much fuller reckoning in the United States of America with the follies and the, call it wickedness, of our foreign policy post-Cold War. Coming up, in hindsight, could we all please retake those post-Cold War years? This is Open Source. Andy Basevich, Jim Carroll. Let me ask a different sort of threshold question. Did you ever believe this war in Ukraine could have been avoided? And in the moment, do you believe that this war can be stopped tomorrow? Well, let's say before Christmas. But go back to the beginning. Did this war have to happen? The weeks and months prior to the Russian invasion were marked, as you recall, by strident warnings coming from the United States about the Russian plan, Putin's plan to invade Ukraine. The United States, in my view, did what it could to make it clear to Putin it would be a savage mistake, a self-destructive mistake on his part and Russia's part to go forward with this war. I think that that period of warnings was an important strong effort to thwart Putin's plans. It failed. The Ukrainian people, apparently, didn't take those warnings particularly seriously. That was a mistake. Could this have been different? Putin might have taken the what now, in hindsight, seems like sage advice from the U.S. and the West not to do this self-destructive, effectively uh, Russia-destructive uh, act of aggression. I'd be very surprised if Putin doesn't have large second thoughts about what he did uh, beginning in March. Andy. So Jim's context here is, is weeks and months, perfectly legitimate. But I would prefer a context of years and decades. In other words, to understand the origins of the Ukraine war, we can pick any kind of historical start point. But it seems to me that the, the most uh, instructive would be the immediate aftermath of the Cold War and U.S. policy with regard to Soviet Union and then, of course, Russia in the wake of our, I'll put it in quotes, triumph in the Cold War. The story is not a simple one, but I think that the bottom line is that U.S. policy privileged the interests and the well-being, the aspirations for the peoples of Eastern Europe and certain former Soviet republics, privileged their interests over the interests and security concerns of Russia itself. We rub the Kremlin's face in their defeat, defeat meaning the end of the Cold War. Putin was among those who said that we ain't going to take it. This is unacceptable. And uh, we chose to disregard those concerns. Nothing that I just said legitimizes Russia's policy with regard to Ukraine. There is no way to legitimize that. But there is a context here 
And when we answer Chris's question, could this have been avoided? Well, I think the answer is arguably yes. None of this is certain. Arguably yes, had U.S. policy toward Russia after the fall of the Berlin Wall been more farsighted and wiser. Andy, you've read my essay, you said. Uh, I make that case every bit as uh, urgently as you do. You do. You do. I believe that our mistaken policies, including a failure to follow through on the partnership of peace that would have included Russia in some kind of international security structure in Europe, and uh, also our unnecessary expansion of NATO in the 1990s, I warned at the time and still believe that that was part of what brought a reactionary fascist like Putin, not just to power, but to a form of power that's Putin at his worst. So yes, the consequences of American hubris, triumphalism at the end of the Cold War, we're living with those consequences. But none of that, none of that in any way relates really to what Putin is doing in Ukraine now. To attribute early 90s American policies, to attribute to those policies responsibility, authorship of the war in Ukraine is equivalent, as I say in this essay, to blaming the Holocaust on Woodrow Wilson because of the injustices to Germany done at the Versailles Treaty. That doesn't let Adolf Hitler off the hook for his criminal behavior. In some respects, the question is, what's the task? You know, do we want to position ourselves as a hanging judge? Well, who do we find guilty? This case, it seems to me, is pretty simple. Putin is guilty. But if we want to understand how this horrible event came about, then it's not sufficient to find Putin guilty. And it is necessary to recognize the extent to which our own behavior, our own recklessness, our own misguidedness uh, contributed to this event. Because unless we recognize that, uh, then it seems to me that we are doomed to continue to repeat the follies of the recent past. I'm not sure either of you have answered what could be a simple question. Say, January of this year, could this war have been averted? Could it have been talked down? Well, we can't know. My answer is perhaps, and it would have required, here, here's, an, here's an explosive term, it would have required appeasement. That is to say, we would have taken seriously Putin's expression of Russian security concerns and how the prospect of Ukraine becoming part of NATO was viewed by him, not by us, not by Ukrainians, by him as a national security threat. Now, had we done that, had we appeased Putin, again, an explosive term, had we appeased Putin, would that have avoided the war? It's impossible to say. You'd have to do it. You'd have to appease and find out if that was sufficient to satisfy the appetite of the dictator. Jim, your view. We, well, we might not have known at the time that Putin was making such a claim late last year and early this year that it was true, that that was really motivating him. He claimed to be motivated by anxiety about NATO. I would argue that his behavior since the war began absolutely disproves that. The man was not motivated by anxiety about NATO. NATO was not then and is not now the cause of Putin's activity. The cause of it is his mythologically driven 
hubristic, mad dream of reestablishing a Soviet empire, which required first the obliteration of Ukraine as a liberal democratic state right next to Russia. So to lift up Putin's anxiety about NATO as the driving engine of his invasion, again, that's a Putin talking point. I don't buy it. And I think by now in the war, Andy, I'm surprised that you would buy it. <laughs> I knew I was going to get put into this position. Jim, one of the things that I believe uh, is that war aims change once a conflict begins. And to the extent that the conflict doesn't go the way that people in power expect, I think there's a tendency to expand war aims. When the United States entered World War I, 1917, the proximate cause was Germans uh, reinitiating unrestricted submarine warfare. I think it's pretty clear by that time, Wilson, and if I could use this phrase, the American power elite had become very concerned about the implications of a possible German military victory and what that would mean, first of all, economically for the United States, less directly for the security of the United States. But Wilson then transformed the war, once we were in it, into a crusade for democracy. He made of it something that it wasn't at yet. Certainly, it was never that for, for, for Great Britain and France. It's a challenge, you know, when a leader, whether it's the good guy or the bad guy, articulates a war aim, to what degree is the articulation of the war aim reflection of what the leader has come to believe, has come to identify as purpose, as to pose what it was originally? The war in Ukraine is another good example of that. You make the point about Putin's anxiety about Ukraine and NATO as a generating cause. And at the time the war began, Ukraine wasn't seriously a candidate for membership in NATO. There had been foolish uh, rhetoric about it from George W. Bush and others perhaps going back, but it wasn't, it wasn't taken seriously. Membership to NATO, as you know, requires unanimous consent of NATO members. There were any number of NATO nations that were openly and quite explicitly opposed to bringing Ukraine in. Ukraine's ambition to become part of the European Union was powerful. And that was actually anathema. That was as anathema to Putin as anything about NATO, because that too assumed liberal democratic values and social commitments on the part of Ukraine. That's what uh, Putin was allergic to. And as, war aims, as wars unfold, yes, the aims do change. So now it's very clear that Ukraine wants to be part of NATO for obvious reasons at this point. But that wasn't uh, Ukraine's position at the beginning of this war, Andy. And I'd be surprised if you think it was. Well, I don't mean to surprise you. <laughs> Uh, it would be my view that... Uh, Zelensky himself said that early in the war, he said that Ukraine did not want to be part of NATO. He said that. He said explicitly, we're aiming, we hope to be part of the European Union. Ah, that gives away the game. Yes, Ukraine aspired to become an integral part of the West. And well, in it's the a post European nation, and it the, wanted to be an integral part of Europe. In the post-Cold War world, that means two things. You join the EU... That's where you get the economic, social, political payoff. You join NATO. That's where you get you know, Finland the and Sweden payoff. have been part of uh, Europe without being part of NATO for decades. Come on. 
It's only now that they want to be part of NATO, again, for obvious reasons. No, Ukraine saw itself like Sweden and Finland, explicitly describing itself that way. <laughs> Jim, the central argument in your long essay turns beyond Ukraine. The war in Ukraine, even now, is serving mainly, you say, to unveil again the dreaded reality of nuclear weapons and war. Not just mutually assured destruction, the infamous MAD, but a virtually inescapable logic of escalation. Deterrence, you argue, is the worst of it. Something like a promise that a first strike will be met by a counter-strike and onward to annihilation of civilization, maybe life. Andy, how do you feel about that logic of this is a rehearsal, a lesson in the nuclear danger? And that's its real meaning. The real meaning of the war. Yeah. I mean, there are other ways to identify a meaning, but that's Jim's. I would say it's one of the real meanings of the war. Well, I, I would argue that the end of the Cold War actually presented the moment when, if the United States were interested in eliminating nuclear weapons, vigorous action on our part, leadership on our part, may have had positive results. May. We don't know. We chose otherwise. Yes, we've reduced the size of our arsenal as the Russians have reduced the size of their arsenal, but overkill is still a reality. And indeed, this is something that it amazes me that it gets so little attention in our political discourse. We're investing over a trillion dollars in a modern, comprehensive modernization program. We're building a new manned bomber. We're building new land-based strategic missiles. We're building new missile-launching submarines. We're building new missiles that will be carried by those submarines. We're building new weapons, some of which will be, quote-unquote, more flexible than the prior generation. We're taking that as our initiative. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that that's a big deal. And it's one that whatever the outcome of the Ukraine war may be, that program is going to continue. Embraced by Republicans, embraced by Democrats, perhaps with the anti-nuclear, anti-war fringe objecting, but with no real impact on policy. And the conduct and the outcome of the Ukraine war are utterly irrelevant to that. You earlier, Andy, talked about the inevitable path that will follow from the end of the Ukraine war, and you just actually made a very eloquent summary of the horrors that are ahead. Uh, you didn't quite go there, but I would say that all that you just outlined as part of what's underway now in the United States of America, with its equivalents in other nations, China, it will be in Russia, probably. We know that as a result of the war in Ukraine, it's likely that thresholds toward nuclear acquisition will be crossed. The nine nations that have weapons will be expanded. Other nations will get them. A new arms race will be underway with the nations. You just outlined American elements of it. All of it, drastic, drastic consequence heading toward, in my view, the annihilation of the human species. I don't agree with you that that's the inevitable outcome of the war in Ukraine. I think there's another possible outcome, and that's the reason I'm doing this. And that is to call for a recognition of this very danger right now 
because of Putin making it explicit that this has to end. This has to end. You said only an anti-war fringe will continue to care about this. I don't believe that. After all, we talk about the end of the Cold War. How did the end of the Cold War come about? It came about because of the leadership of two unlikely characters, Mikhail Gorbachev and the most hawkish of American presidents, Ronald Reagan, who agreed in principle explicitly to eliminate all nuclear weapons. We know they didn't do it. We know that in some ways it was almost certainly disingenuous. It was certainly opposed by national security establishments on both sides of the Iron Curtain. But Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev explicitly promised each other that by the end of the 20th century, all nuclear weapons would be eliminated. It didn't happen, but that dialogue was essential to what did happen, which was the turn away from escalation, the beginning of nuclear reduction, the first reduction taking place with the 1987 treaty signed by Reagan and Gorbachev, which was the instrument that brought about the nonviolent end of the Cold War. That was not just an anti-war fringe, Andy. That was the center of policy. It can happen again. Why? Because people all over the world right now have reason to see for the first time with real clarity since the Cuban Missile Crisis the character of the precipice on which we stand. The human species is at risk. The extinction of humanity is a possibility. I believe once human beings see that, they will act on it. How, the anti, the wish, anti-war fringe is only one part of this story. How I wish you were right. How I wish that we could uh, pick up the Boston Globe and see it filled with stories and editorials denouncing uh, nuclear weapons, decrying the possibility of nuclear war, instead of denouncing Vladimir Putin and cheering for the latest announcement from the White House about the increase in the weaponry being provided by the United States and its allies in order to bring about the defeat of Russia. I'm sorry, I don't see. I wish I saw that concern about the prospect of nuclear war were at the forefront of the discussion triggered by the Ukraine war. I don't see it. It was at the forefront, the absolute forefront of American world awareness in the early 1980s, when grassroots movements in the United States, something called the Freeze Movement in Europe, a mass movement against the installation of the Pershing missiles by the United States Army, Behind the Iron Curtain, Solidarity, the Forum Movement, the Freedom Democracy Movement in East Germany, grassroots movement in the early 1980s, rising up and making it clear ultimately to Reagan and Gorbachev that, as Dwight D. Eisenhower once said, war is so evil and people so want peace that the leaders of the world better get out of their way and give it to them. And I think that that did happen and can happen again. Uh, and it's not mutually exclusive, Andy, with continuing to support American and Western supply of what the Ukrainians need to defend their territory. Coming up, happier hindsight on a golden moment after the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is Open Source. 
I want to come back to the word deterrence, Jim, and you write about it at great length. This is the problem, the strike-counterstrike logic. Breaking out of that logic, the spiral of escalation would require all kinds of good things to happen, including a carefully calculated change of responses. I watched this war in Ukraine, if I may say, and I wonder if it itself could have been an experiment in creative non-response to even Putin's brand of cruelty. What if we said, we're not going to escalate in the war you've created. We're not even going to respond. We're going to, I don't know what, but we're going to find another way. Somebody's going to have to do it if the world is to be saved. Say, no, the whole logic of me responding to your punch is wrong. Well, I'd say that's a good summary of the pacifist position, which has an elegant nobility to it. But we're talking about saving the species, too. Well, yes, but saving the species requires that the malignity of Vladimir Putin not be allowed to go on unleashed. You know, you just sort of answered your own question, Chris, by saying the alternative to a fight-back response to Putin was, and then you said, I don't know what. There was no alternative for the Ukrainian people at the invasion of their country. They had to fight back. They were right to fight back. Their fighting back is just, and it's worthy of support. That logic, Jim, applied to a nuclear exchange is the end of the world. Well, let me just take on your question about deterrence, nuclear deterrence. What actually does it mean? Nuclear deterrence means the way I keep you from attacking me is I am ready at a moment's notice to obliterate your entire society. Nuclear deterrence, which is strategically defined as mutual assured destruction, is a suicide pact. It's a suicide pact not just between two nations, Soviet Union and the United States created it. It's a suicide pact for the entire human species. That's what is at the bottom of the malign dysfunction of the nuclear weapons structure that is at the base of international power structures. And that's what must be dismantled. I disagree with Andy that there is no way to do this. He wishes we could. Wishing we could isn't enough at this point. We're on a raft heading for the Niagara Falls. We're still at the point of needing an international structure of power that does not depend on the atomic bomb, on nuclear weapons. And Right now, in front of the United Nations, is something called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, of Nuclear War, agreed by well over 100 nations in 2017 and ratified in January of 2021 by 50 nations, which brought it into force. Most people ignored it, frankly. I did. It's only now that the potential of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is showing itself. At the end of this war, Andy pointed to one path. I'm pointing to another path. I agree that the likelihood is that Andy's path is the one that's likely. If it's left to corporations and the people in charge of states, it will surely be. But if there's a a broad recognition at the grassroots, as there was in the early 80s, that this system has to change, then there could be another path. And it could include, for one thing, the reimagining and reinvention of the United Nations itself. I want Andy's view on the general hope that there is a path now through 
the United Nations. I think implicit in Jim's uh, argument is a radical change in the international order. Radical in the sense that sovereign states will no longer form the basis of that order. For as, as long as sovereign states are calling the shots, then differences in power are going to matter, and the pursuit of national interest, however defined, are likely to shape international politics. Jim writes in his essay, Moscow's holding veto power over UN Security Council decisions is impossible to sustain. Well, the charter, UN Charter created a UN Security Council with five permanent members, each of which holding the veto. The five probably didn't make any sense back in 1945 and 1946, but there were five then. Here we are all these decades later, there are still five. None of the five is going to give up its veto power. None of the five is going to give up its permanent seat on the UN Security Council. I think that arguably is an unfortunate fact, but it's a fact. And therefore, there will be no excluding of Russia. However terrible Russia's criminal behavior in, in Ukraine, there will be no denying Russia that status, just as there will be no denying it to the United States if the United States decides to go off and embark upon a war of choice in the Middle East that kills uh, hundreds of thousands of people. So there are aspects of the international order that it seems to me are likely to be permanent unless there is genuinely radical change. I'd like to ask you both, what is the relevance of the history we know well, the near catastrophe of the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962? I've been making the case that the end of wars are a golden moment for reordering international structures, the end of World War I, the end of World War II. The end of the Cuban Missile Crisis was another golden moment because the human species had seen the danger clear. We spent weeks on the edge of a nuclear catastrophe and people all over the planet understood that. What was the response to that? John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev were both changed powerfully by it. But the golden moment showed itself a few months later in June of 1963 when Kennedy at the American University delivered a powerful address directed explicitly to the Soviet people, calling on them to recognize in us fellow human beings who share the same fates of mortality, of love for our children, of wishing for each other a future. And that speech led directly to the beginning of the arms control regime with the agreement of the partial test ban treaty only a couple of months later. The beginning of the arms control regime, which ultimately, eventually, through Reagan and Gorbachev, enabled the Cold War to end nonviolently. So the Cuban Missile Crisis was the event that led to a new way of relating between the Soviet Union and the United States that empowered nonviolence and enabled the resolution of the Cold War. And that's the result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy was also calling on us, Jim, to see the Russians anew, to see their losses. Yes, of course. But I wonder if we remember about the Missile Crisis that what resolved it was 13 days and nights of talk and compromise. 
and that President Kennedy got the missiles out of Cuba by getting the U.S. missiles, pointed at Russia, out of Turkey. Where is that bargaining spirit today? That's a question that's yet to be answered. One hopes desperately that bargaining, diplomacy, negotiation will bring this horrible war to a conclusion. This war will end, as I think Vladimir Zelensky has said, it will end through negotiation. It won't end through the radical triumph of one side or the other. Moscow is not going to be destroyed by Ukraine, and the Ukrainian people are not going to stop fighting the Russian invasion. Andy. I admire uh, President Kennedy's uh, statesmanship in the Cuban Missile Crisis greatly. Which was misreported at the time. The line was, we were eyeball to eyeball and the other guy blinked. Not so. Not so. And I admire his courage in standing up to his many advisors, particularly his military advisors, who basically wanted to bomb and or invade Cuba. But we can't say that the story ends there. I would argue, respectfully, we can't somehow draw a line from that moment, the golden moment, to some of the events that Jim has eloquently described. The immediate aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, if we narrow the aperture, was Operation Mongoose, where Kennedy assigned his brother, Robert, the Attorney General of the United States, with the task of organizing covert operations to overthrow Fidel Castro and destroy the Cuban Revolution. Widen the aperture just a little bit more, and the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis is increasing the commitment of the United States to support South Vietnam, an undertaking which he is unable to see through to its conclusion because he's assassinated, but then is embraced by his successor, also imbued with anti-communism or the fears of being seen to be weak on communism, uh, leading to the massive, tragic, criminal Vietnam War that lasts into the next decade. So there's a problem here, I think, with trying to identify a thread that can lead us to a happy outcome. We don't know how the war is going to end, and please God, let it end without nuclear weapons being actually used. But I think it's far more likely that when the war ends, that there will be powerful voices in the United States who will argue, see, nuclear deterrence works. And that's why we have to maintain and modernize our nuclear arsenal. Who will point to the military support that the United States has been providing with Ukraine, this proxy war. No Americans getting killed. What could be more wonderful? We'll point to that and we'll point to the, the success, as it will be described, of the American weaponry in contributing to the defense of Ukraine and say, this is an argument for more such weapons, for increasing the military spending of the United States of America, for maintaining our aligned structures, for maintaining our constellation of overseas bases, basically for maintaining the status quo. That's what I see as as the likely outcome. And it will be, even if, as I hope and pray, Ukraine survives this horrible event, that is the undertaking that I see as the most likely. Andy, I want to solemnly promise you that I will stand shoulder to shoulder with you opposing those voices. And I think you're right. That is probably the most likely outcome of a war 
the fallacy that nuclear deterrence works, that military power is more important than ever, that we have to ramp up our nuclear arsenal, all of that. I object to it as much as you do. But it goes to my other perception, which is the danger of the outcome of where that path leads is clearer than it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let me just step aside from our, I used the word earlier, I accepted it from you, obsession with Vladimir Putin's evil and bring us to another instance of the same danger, which is Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not a rational actor. We simply have to change this. And the fact that it's hard to change or hard to see exactly how we change it is all second to the perception that I believe Americans, human beings are capable of, of seeing the nuclear age must end. If it doesn't, the human age will end. I hope and pray that Jim's vision comes to pass. I just find it highly unlikely. The structural support for maintaining the status quo is so so powerful, so embedded, I don't think it can be budged. The corruption of our politics. I mean, Jim, in his comment, opened up a, an entire new area for conversation. It's not Trump. It's Trumpism. It's hyper-nationalistic populism. It's the resentment of, this is a vast generalization, of white Americans who find that their status is, in fact, being reduced and who are deeply resentful. It's the manifest corruption of the Republican Party at all levels that infects our politics. It is the rise of China as a nation that arguably is as powerful as we are today and will be more powerful and will be wealthier if they can contain their own internal forces of of disruption, something that is beyond the capacity of Americans even to imagine. What? We won't be number one? And of course, the response to the possibility of being number two is not to negotiate peace and goodwill. It's to shovel more money to the Pentagon. So I view myself as an old guy. I think Jim is even older than I am. <laughs> but in this case, it seems to me Age produces optimism, which I admire greatly. Uh, but as the younger old guy, I just don't see any of that happening. I'm so grateful for a very candid airing of a lot of infinitely difficult questions, Andy and Jim. Is there a summing up point you'd like to leave us with? I would simply say that nuclear deterrence, mutual assured destruction, the basic structure of American power, what underwrites the primacy of the Pentagon in American economic, cultural, intellectual, journalistic, academic life, all of that depends on the readiness, the willingness to murder millions of human beings. That's what the United States power structure is based on right now. No matter what else that involves, no matter what kind of security a transactional arrangement with that structure gives us. It is evil. It is radically evil. It is absolutely evil. And that is an infection in the soul of this country. Andy Bacevich. 
Well, there is merit to what Jim just said, but I see no evidence of any willingness, either on the part of our political leadership, either party, or of the American people more generally, to revisit and reconsider these arrangements. And sadly, my expectation is that the war in Ukraine will affirm them and give them new life. How so? So what are we, just a year after the debacle in Kabul, which drew to an end a 20-year-long war? When the Afghanistan war ended, we had already forgotten the Iraq war, which was another debacle, both suggesting the limited effectiveness of American military power. And lo and behold, here we are with the Ukraine war. We are now siding with the good guys. We are siding with the good guys. And I fear that there's a high likelihood uh, that when all is said and done, that especially our political establishment, especially the military-industrial complex, but also the great majority of the American people, we will pat ourselves on the back for having rescued Ukraine in its hour of need. And therefore, we will insist that there really is no need to rethink basic U.S. military policy and posture. And therefore, also beyond that, there's no need for us to shift our priorities away from our aspirations to global military primacy, that other matters, climate change, as an example, can be classified as lesser concerns. This grand project of the national security apparatus will take on new life and will persist. Andrew Bacevich and James Carroll, we've gone far and wide and deep in this hour. I can't thank you enough. And thank you, Chris. It's a, a rare occasion to have such a serious conversation. I agree. Thank you very much. Andrew Bacevich is the president of the Quincy Institute. James Carroll is the author of many books, including Constantine's Sword. You can read his essays on the Ukraine war at publicseminar.org. You've just heard a new installment of In Search of Monsters, continuing our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasters making some of the liveliest podcasts out there, including one called Soon-ish from technology journalist Wade Rausch. His latest is a show about science fiction that is shaping the real-life future. Find it at soonishpodcast.org. And check out the whole range of Hub & Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org.